What's up, y'all, and welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I am your host, as always, Jack Vita. Uh, today we have a very special guest joining us uh, here in a second. If you guys like the show, make sure you subscribe to the Jack Vita Show and log on to my website, jackvita.com. Last week, we created our own 24-team college football playoff and we ran a simulator. So if you guys are interested in that, go back and check that out. We're going to have some more great episodes in the future. So subscribe to the show if you guys enjoy what you hear today. All right. Joining us at this time is University of Florida football legend. Uh, he is a college. He's on the ballot for the College Football Hall of Fame. Nine years in the NFL. He also went on a show called Survivor, as did his wife. They both did very well on there. Brad Culpepper, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fine, Jack. Thanks Thanks for asking. It's great to have you here. I'm curious, with you being a Florida guy, there was a really good quarterback who also played in Florida at Central Florida who shares the same last name as you. Over the last 20 years, how often have you guys been mixed up with each other? Has anyone been, oh, you're Dante Culpepper, and you're like, no. Brad Culpepper? A little bit. Uh, not as much me, because most people know he's African-American and <laughs> follow it. Um, although some people just see the last name Culpepper and assume I was a quarterback. Uh, Dante, I haven't seen him in 15 years, but I'm as big as he was, I imagine he probably looks more like I did when I played. And I probably look more like he did when he played because I'm only about 200 pounds now. Um, but my wife, gets it more, uh, oh, are you married to Dante? And she's like, no, my husband would have sacked Dante. Uh, (laughs) So, but no, he was a heck of a player and then really had a kind of a quick career, but it was quite meteoric in in the NFL. He did did really well for the short time he was there, but but, uh, he was a good player. He was very good. Like he he had that prime. It was a short prime and he kind of burned out quickly. But when he was at the top of his game, I mean, they had that Vikings team where they just put up so much offense with him and Moss and Chris Carter. It was a great team. Yeah, I, I actually played with Chris. I was, my, I was drafted by the Vikings. So I, my first two years, I played with Chris Carter, um, Anthony Carter, Chris Carter. God, we had an amazing team that I was drafted to. It was surprising we didn't win a Super Bowl, but we had five Hall of Famers, uh, Johnny Randall, Randall McDaniel, Chris Carter, uh, Gary Zimmerman, um, I'm missing one, and Chris Dolman. Oh, right, yeah. yeah there were there were five Hall of Famers on that team, and Jack Del Rio was our middle linebacker. Rich Gannon was a quarterback. Uh, Roger Craig was a running back. It was a star-studded team. But anyway, yeah, uh, Dante went to a, a good program, was good. I guess uh, I think it was Nick Saban was the one who took him over Drew Brees as a free agent back in the day because Drew Brees uh, had a bad – shoulder i think maybe or something yeah there's a parallel universe where drew Brees and nick saban end up with the miami dolphins and just kick butt for 10 years but unfortunately right. for the miami fans that did not happen and fortunately for alabama fans that did happen not fortunate for florida fans though No, it, it is not um i guess funny his name came i ran into uh so this weekend i, I my son uh judge plays for toledo and they played in the bahama bowl um, did you travel uh, for that? What's that? Did you go to the Bahamas? For I, I did. I did. Um, which was not 
easy, especially with this Omicron situation. It's been a, a pain. So we had to get tested right before we left to leave. And then we have to get tested right. And, and uh, we're, we're all vaccinated, but that really didn't matter. You still had to show a non-COVID test or that you don't have COVID on the test. But anyway, so when I was down there, unrelated to the bowl game, I ran into Chris Deering, uh, who played. He was a freshman when I was a senior. It's funny. He was like, God, I was so scared. You guys were so mean on defense. And he goes, you guys were so big and strong. I was so scared of you guys. But anyway, Chris and I obviously know each other, not as much from when we played together, but more so since then. And we were, of course, talking about the Urban Meyer situation, which is interesting in itself. And I think my biggest takeaway uh, that I know Urban pretty well. He and I are good friends. And, and uh, Chris, not as much, was a fan. Um, but I know that the biggest things that, that would bother Urban is not the money, is not everything, but the, the legacy and um, the fact that as of right now, and, and, you know, this is such a mar on his, I don't know, a hall of fame coaching career, you know, if, if nothing else happens with him, he's going to be, you know, kind of remembered as the guy who really failed miserably in the pros. And the only reason I, I'm segueing into this is because had Nick Saban not, you know, gone back to Alabama, um, it would have been the same kind of thing with him. You know, he would have been a kind of, yeah, he was a great college coach, but you know, he was a failed pro coach and that's kind of how he's remembered whereas now Nick's gone back to college and now he's the greatest college coach of all time. Uh, and that's how it's known. So it'll be interesting to see what Urban does because I know this, I haven't spoken with him since the situation, but, you know, the losing kind of moniker will, will crush a guy like that. Um, and I really think the only way to get rid of it were, would be for him to get back into it. But, you know, I, I, I don't know there – I don't know that there would be a pro opportunity for him. I, I, I think that door's probably closed. But, you know, obviously I think there potentially would be, you know, a good college opening that he could take. Um, but that's a monster in itself. That's a young man's game too. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that progresses. Um, but yeah, Lou Holtz, same kind of thing. He was a terrible pro coach, and, and but he went back to it and won national championships with uh, Notre Dame. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you bring up Urban Meyer. I was going to bring this up because he obviously a Florida guy. He coached Florida and they were amazing. That was when I was growing up. I was yes. too young when you played. I, right. I wasn't alive yet, actually. And then there was this, you know, the great Steve Spurrier era, right. a little dip. And then Urban comes in and they're just amazing with Tim Tebow. Yeah. He goes over to Ohio State and people forget that Ohio State, they had dipped before he went over there. They were like... Sure. They were like a 500 team, I think, in the Big Ten the year before he came over. And Ohio State head and shoulders above the Big Ten for the last four years, five years. And now you're starting to see them kind of come down and Michigan's going up. To tell the truth, Brad, I was really shocked at the way things played out for Urban in Jacksonville because I just looked at what everywhere he had gone, he had absolutely thrived in my opinion i thought he was the second best coach of the new millennium in the sport of college football behind Nick Saban. yeah no uh, um i had cautious optimism for him in jacksonville his style of coaching is extremely conducive to younger players um 
it's not oppressive. I mean, he's he's a but he's more like Nick Saban than he is Tony Dungy. Um, when he got to Florida, matter of fact, I met him like in, in 06 and I was, we were at a, I'm a member of a hunting club that we don't hunt. We kind of just shoot, we do a little bird hunting, but it's a, a prestigious club called Gilcrest club and, and near Gainesville. And I was there and they were having a, he'd already been coached for Florida for a year. And uh, Charlie Strong was with him, defense coordinator then. And I, Charlie was a defensive ends coach when I played at Florida and I know Charlie real well. So Charlie introduced me to Urban and Urban said, uh, hey, were you on that 96 team, which was the Danny Werfel team that, that uh, you know, won the national championship. Uh, and uh, I graduated in 91. I get, so I said, no, I was not. But I, I guarantee I, I kind of was up front with him. And first of all, he was looking at me like he could take me. I was like, <laughs> first of all, you can't take me. Um, but second of all, no, I wasn't on that team. But every single player on that team was at Florida because of our team in 91. So because of me. So anyway, he kind of liked that gravitas or whatever. <laughs> so I would end up – I ended up – he would have me come speak to the team. When, uh, Tebow was a freshman. Um, so I spoke to the team once a year uh, all the way through. So I got to know, you know, a whole cast of characters um, and uh, got to know Urban really well. He was unbelievable. He's an unbelievable college coach. And, and you know, I, I, I would agree with you, you know, behind Saban, he's, you know, number two. Uh, you know, you got Dabo, who, who, who would be up there too, but I would put Urban ahead of him. And no, when he was at Utah, they went undefeated. You know, I mean, yeah, he was at Bowling Green and they did extremely well there, did amazing at Utah. He's one wherever. And I guarantee you, if he went somewhere else, although he doesn't need to, and, and, and my mem- memory of, of Urban would be college – centric um you know i just know that i know how he thinks and he's like i can't leave like this i got to get back into it but if he went to texas or if he went to wherever uh he absolutely would would win again that's his style though with pros it's a whole different animal you really it's not a matter of everybody's got to be rowing the same direction of their own will uh not because you're telling them college you can got to tell them we're rowing this way and it's like, get off the boat because uh, somebody I can put somebody else in. With the pros, it's like, we're going to row this direction, and this is why. And if they're not buying it, they're not going to row. And it's just, this is kind of the way it is. It's not a matter of just, you know, this is the way it's been. This is why we're going to do it. It's kind of like parenting a little bit. Um, you know, the, the heavy-handed parenting maybe works the younger they are, but as they get older in middle school and high school, they got to believe what you're selling. And if they don't, they're not going to, you know, they're going to go out and drink or they're going to go out and, you know, dope it up or, you know, sex it up or whatever. It's like, you know, you, you got to put have them put priorities and understand, you know, things that can make you get ahead in the world and not. So um, yeah, pro coaching is more like parenting a high schooler uh, and college coach is more like parenting a five-year-old. <laughs> so you think that, just the way that he's wired, the way that he runs a locker room, that he's just he's better suited for the college game. Yes. Yeah. And and if if you had to put my foot to the fire prior to him going to Jacksonville, I would have said not that I, I wouldn't have said he was going to fail or not succeed as a pro coach, but I would have said he's going to need to change things up. Um, which you know he's so ingrained on how he coaches as a head coach. I don't. I don't. It didn't seem like he did change that much. Um, and I think there have been articles or he's spoken about it. 
you got to understand losing in the pros. You know, it's every week it's Alabama, Ohio State, or, you know, that that's that's every week, every game is that way. I mean, look at this weekend. You got Detroit, who has no business, you know, even hanging with, uh, um, you know, Arizona, and, you know, they, they smoked them. Uh, you look at the Bucks. I mean, they got the arguably going into this weekend the most prolific offense, and they got shut out. Um, by a banged up New Orleans team that doesn't have a head coach, doesn't really have a, you know, has a, uh, a steroid Tim Tebow uh, as quarterback, you know. So it, every week is super difficult. And and, um, and I know how Urban is. The wins, and I think most successful pro players, pro coaches, and, you know, college players, college coaches, the wins are never as are are not as good as the losses are bad. And when you lose, you know, you lose on Sunday, you don't really get over it until, I mean, Thursday, you know, maybe you put, you know, depends on how it was, but if you really played poorly, I mean, it's not till Thursday or Friday when you're really over that down the dumps. Um, but conversely, when you win, you know, you don't enjoy it for, for three to three or four days. You only enjoy it for like one night. And then you're like, okay, who we have next? And, and that's as long as you can enjoy the win. So the, the losses are much worse than the wins are good. Were you that way when you played? Yeah. You know, and it's your job. So um, it's not, you know, you'd like to say it was only winning and losing. And obviously you could, the medicine was much easier to take if you had a poor game and you won. But it was more on an individual basis on how well you played. And we, we could have lost a game, but yet I played well. So I feel pretty, I feel decent. Um, but again, you know, it's my livelihood. I've got wife and children that I've got to support and, and they're always looking for your replacement, no matter when you were drafted or, or what, uh, you know, Brett Favre was cut at some point or, you know, Emmett Smith was cut at some point. So, I mean, it's, they're always looking, you know, to replace you. So you're always kind of checking behind you. So, uh, when you lose and, and don't play well, oh my God, it's, you got to get back out and pull your shovel back out and keep digging. Now, Brad, you mentioned a difference between an Urban Meyer and a guy like Tony Dungy, who you, I know you spent a lot of years uh, playing for. He was a defensive coordinator when you were in Minnesota. Yeah. Then he comes over and coaches the Bucks. What were your thoughts on playing for Coach Dungy and his him being a different kind of coach that a lot of guys you probably saw? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think obviously, and not obviously, but I went to a high school that was a fire and brimstone type coach. Um uh, college, my head coaches were pretty mellow. Steve was pretty mellow with the defense, but I had defensive coordinators and, and, and you know, defensive coaches that were kind of just rah, 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 real loud and, and demonstrative. And then I got to Minnesota as a, uh, with Tony Dungy. We had, we had Monty Kiffin was our linebackers coach. Got him, John Tierlink was a defense line coach. He's the legend. Uh, he's passed since, but, uh, and then we had Tony, uh, uh, Tony Dungy was our defensive coordinator. Um, oh, and, and the DB coach, oh, his son coaches Stanford now. Um, oh, right. Yeah. I'm blanking anyway, on the name too. Yeah, no, but he was good. But anyway, but Tony was very even keeled, very calm, uh, was very, he was like a teacher and he, he, things were matter of fact and, and he was a straight shooter, but you know, he, he gave you a plan and he did this as a head coach too. Every, every week on a Tuesday, Here's the plan of how we beat, you know, whomever we play. 
And if we follow this plan, we will win. And so then every Monday after the Sunday game, we either won or we lost. And he'd go back to the plan. He goes, we won because we blah, blah, blah. And or we lost because we didn't. Rarely, if ever, was there a situation where we connected all the dots and lost or, or uh, you know, didn't connect on any and won. Uh, those those were really rare. But, but you know, he, but, and he wasn't any less fearful or, or – you know, I wanted to please him as much as I did the coaches that I was I was scared of, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, he was almost like a, a pseudo father figure, and when he was disappointed because we all played poorly, it, it it hurt us and it made you really want to go out and and work harder to please dad. Um, so that was his mentality, and it was it was more of a calming, uh, matter of fact. Let's get to work. Let's this is what we need to do. And we were, we definitely bought what he sold. We had the number one defense in the NFL in 93, I believe. And then he came down to Tampa and, and, you know, I was there two years before he got there and, you know, he inherited Warren Sapp and, and uh, John Lynch and, and Derek Brooks. And we were all kind of on middling teams win five to seven games. And he got there and, you know, we struggled a little bit at first, but we won like the last, four or five games in a row. And that pushed us into 97 when we went to the playoffs when the Bucks hadn't been in the playoffs in forever. And, and then in 99, we won the uh, NFC championship game and, and, uh, and then had the, the Bert Emanuel drop and we should have gone to the Super Bowl. But, but, um, and then, you know, he ends up going to Indianapolis and winning his championship. But, but I, I, I think of him as this, the prototypical, I don't know. He's he's the best coach I ever had as far as head coach, and I, I would think his formula for success uh, is probably followed more so by the pro coaches than any others. I mean, even Belichick. I mean, he's you know, he's not overly uh, communicative to the press, um, but he's 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 not a screamer. You know, he's uh, this this is what we're going to do. This is the plan, and if you don't if we don't do it, he'll either you know get rid of you or get somebody who will. And you know, just real business like. So I'm a big Tony Dungy fan, and I saw he did an interview recently with Jason Whitlock. And in this interview, he mentioned you. So I'm going to play this clip. I have the clip here. It's about a minute long. And uh, so it's a little surprise for you, Brad. You ready for this? Okay. Okay. I think even the non-believers respond to that message and are attracted to it, even though they're non-believers. <laughs> They, they responded well because you're honest with them, Jason. I, I, when I got my first head job at Tampa, we'd had 13 straight losing seasons. I get the job. I got in front of them just like Coach Noel got in front of us. I said, hey, don't make football your whole life, but you got to take this thing as important. We're here to win. We're going to turn this around. But understand this. I'm a Christian. Okay, so I'm going to coach you a certain way. I'm not going to demean you. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to make you feel small. I'm going to encourage you. And we got to be in this thing together. Well, everybody bought into that. It took some guys longer than others. But uh, I remember <laughs> we were at practice. It started raining. Then the lightning got close. My assistant, who's monitoring that, said, oh, still about eight miles away. We're okay. We get another crash. And Brad Culpepper a defensive lineman for us, he stopped practice. He said, hey, coach, you know where you're going, but for those of us who don't, can we go inside? <laughs> <laughs> and that was just his way of telling me, hey, I, I'm with you. I, I accept this. But 
you you have to coach everybody and you can't just coach the Christian guys. You got to connect with everyone. And I felt like I did that, but I did it by being honest. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I do not remember that. Uh, it sounds like something I would say. Uh, <laughs> That's that pretty good. Uh, hey, I know you're safe, but you know, some of us, we need to keep it going for a while. Uh I was dying of laughter the first time I heard that. That's pretty. That's pretty funny. I, 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 but you know, but even just a small tidbit of hearing him talk, he was saying the same things. It's like you know, Christianity, no Christianity didn't matter. He was a teacher, and and you know, uh, he was an encourager. Um, he was definitely, and not that, not that I, I can be coached, and I, I can appreciate glass half empty guys. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I tend to. I'm not a glass half empty, but I'm a four to six person. I, I don't really get higher than a six and I don't get lower than a four. I kind of keep it, you know, here. Now, my wife is more of a 10 to one because uh, she can get really excited and then she can get really not not excited. Um, but um, and Tony's probably a four to six guy as well. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but but uh, um hearing him just talk about how he likes to teach and how he likes to progress. Oh, I was say he, I was going to say he, he's a glass half empty guy. I mean, he really was and, and looked at all the positives of player and you were, uh, you were considered a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, whether you were, you know, in January, we got 80 guys on the team and there was, you know, everyone was the same. It wasn't like you're only a Buccaneer until you make the final 45 or, or you know, what the, what it was in. If you're in that building and you're putting on, you know, the Buccaneer socks and Buccaneer jockstrap, you are a, a Buccaneer. And, and he treated everyone like that. And I think that that's appreciative because there are other places where it's like, you know, you're just a rookie or you're just a, you know, free agent and, and you know, get in your lane. Well, we were all in the Buccaneer lane when he was here. And that that's a tribute to him and as a person and a coach. You know, it seemed like he really invested not only in you guys as uh, players, but also in your lives and wanting to try to make guys make the right decisions, get involved. I know, uh, is it was it Warwick Dunn who does all the, he built yeah. houses for people. Yeah, and it seems like Dungey, he had a big influence on a lot of young people as I came into the league. I'm telling you, the only time I ever heard him curse uh, which, oh, I, again, I played for him for six years, eight years, six years, four and four and two, six years, um, was about uh, an event that was uh, a charity type situation and a couple guys didn't show up. And uh, he didn't, I think he said, damn, uh, <laughs> which I blocked me out. I mean, that's oh, not, no, you can say that. That was okay. All right. Well, I, I, I don't, <laughs> but, but I mean, that, that, that was as bad as it got, but he was infuriated that somebody failed to show up for a charitable, charitable function that they were supposed to. And, um, you know, if it caused Tony Dungy to curse, it's a, you've done a poor job. And, uh, cause he never cursed about anybody's play on the football field. It was only about something like that. So you're absolutely right. He, he, he invested in players, uh, mentality, both on the field and off. Um, and it permeated everywhere. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different personalities and types in, in, the, in the locker room, but he was able to connect everyone kind of like he was talking about. Um, now he was just saying believers, non-believers, but it was really black, white, oriental, didn't matter, woman, man. Um, you, you felt 
confident with what he was telling you and you believe, I believe, you know, everyone believed what he was saying, not just, uh, you know, I, I think his, I think Gruden who came in after Dungy, um, I think the biggest problem he had was a, a little bit, and I, I never played for the guy and, and, um, and, and he's won a championship and he's, he's a great coach, but he's got a little bit different style, but I don't know that players necessarily think that what he's telling you, he's not, he's telling the same player next door. Uh, I just get that from a, from a lot of players whom I played with that played for him, didn't trust what he would say. And that, that was not the case with Tony. Another guy who was on that coaching staff. I mean, it was a great coaching tree. There were a lot of guys who Tony Dungy yes. succeeded, and he offered opportunities for other black coaches as well in the league. Uh, Herm Edwards was Herm. on that. Yeah, and now Herm's over at Arizona State. He seems yeah. like a guy who really cares about the individuals and wanting to build for sure. uh, strong young men. So I know Lovey things Smith. Lovey Smith, yep. And I live here in Chicago, Brad. So Lovey, ever since the Bears fired Lovey, the, the Bears have been – a dumpster fire. <laughs> no, for sure. And, and I, I'm not quite sure why he hasn't had the success, you know, maybe not that Tony's had, but Lovey's a fantastic coach. Um, I would have no problem with my son's playing for him, you know, if he, if he were the head coach, because um, he has very similar attributes to Tony. Um, so he, he'll be successful no matter what he does. But Herm Edwards, you know, he's a little more enthusiastic, <laughs> yeah. um, but he still has the same kind of uh, um, – mentality of, of being a teacher that Tony did. And, and Rod Marinelli, who's at, at, at Oakland, is the greatest D-line coach in NFL history. I guarantee you that. You know, it didn't work as well when he was a head coach, probably because he's a hands-on guy. He, Rod is – is and being a head coach, you're, you're really hands-off, and you've got to really rely on everybody else to do it. And I think it, it, it was too much for him to be hands-on like he would want to be as a head coach. Uh, would be the only reason he wouldn't succeed. Um, but, you know, the, the, the staff was quite amazing that he put together in Tampa. My One of my bold predictions is I think that Herm Edwards is going to win a Pac-12 championship one of the next three years. It's going to happen pretty soon. Well, I mean, it's all about recruiting. And I think uh, Herm Edwards, uh, I think he, he should be a great recruiter. I mean, he's super enthusiastic. Um, uh, I haven't – the reason I was saying that is I was reading the paper where uh, – um, Kelly. So Brad Johnson's a good friend of mine. Brad and I played together in Minnesota and his son uh, just uh, left LSU um, and went to Texas A&M. Um, and Max Johnson. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. He beat, he beat Texas A&M and then like three weeks later transferring to Texas A&M. Listen, I think Max is a great player. He's a, he's a really brave, tough football player, you know, watching him beat Florida two years in a row. Um, I think whoever got, I was telling Brad, you should definitely, you know, talk, I don't know Napier, um, but I was like, you should call him. I mean, you know, that's a great place to go. Um, obviously Texas A&M's got a great recruiting class and Jimbo can do that. Um, but we were talking a little bit like Kelly. Um, I, I, I've met him. He recruited my sons. Uh, I'll just put it like this. I think Notre Dame is going to thrive with their new coach. Marcus I really Freeman. think they were, I think people were going there because of Notre Dame more so than because of their head coach. And uh, I think when, when you were talking about Herm Edwards, I, I think, I think Notre Dame's new coach and I think they are going to be really good. I think he'll be a good recruiter and there'll be a lot of players that, uh, 
go there now because he's the head coach. I don't even know his name. I, I, I read a little bit about it. I can't, I've read it, but I can't remember it now. But um, I was going it's funny. I was telling, talking to, again, Chris Deering when I was down in the Bahamas and he wasn't there because he, he had his uh, investment group uh, company down there at the Atlantis. But I was like, you know, when Florida was looking for a coach, they should have got Deion Sanders. Oh, my oh, yeah. God, that would have been the splashiest, biggest get around. I guarantee you that guy could get the best players in Florida to all stay and not go to Ohio State, not go to Clemson, and not go to Alabama. I go, that guy would be unbelievable. And if Florida gave it, he would have jumped at that opportunity. I mean, holy smokes. But anyway, I, you, you hope the as a Gator, you hope that the Napier, you know, uh, Saban kind of tree rubs off on him. It seems like that's the plan. You know, they're saying all the right things, and it looks like they're, they're going to invest a boatload of money into the infrastructure of a, of a program, kind of, you know, not just the coaches and, and the facilities, but in just the surrounding, having ADs that are in charge of, you know, player development and, you know, all the, all the different things that Alabama does. It's almost like a pro situation, and it looks like Florida's going to do that. It looks like that Napier uh, – is is that type of coach? So, I'm I'm hopeful for that. I think Napier is going to do a really good job there. Uh, he built something special there at Louisiana. The last yeah. couple of years, I think they've been, you know, a top fifteen, top twenty team, and the college football playoff rankings are set up in a way that they're not really going to give a whole lot of love to the raging Cajuns of the world. But Brad, I went to Valparaiso university. So uh -huh. I know what it's like to be a mid major. I always have a little bit of sympathy for the mid majors. And that actually makes me think, would you like to see an expanded postseason for college football, especially considering how many guys like we have a, we have the, I think it's the peach bowl where the best player at Pitt, Kenny Pickett, the yeah. best player at Michigan State, Kenneth Walker, neither of them are going to play. No, I, I totally, I totally, they, you're talking about expansion from the four, four, four team playoff? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous that they don't. Um, the fact that you can have champions of the Power Five that don't make it in there. And every year, you know, you got, you got two from the SEC things every year or, you know, um, but there, it should be an automatic into a playoff system that you win the Pac-10, you win the Big Ten, you win the Big 12, uh, you win the ACC, or you win the, the SEC that you're in. Um, and, you know, so that's what, five? And then you got, you know, if you did an eight, then you got three kind of at large, which could be a mid-major, you know. And, and, you know, obviously you'd probably have to pull in an SEC team. But, you know, I absolutely – and and there's no reason there. I can't believe that they're not going to expand. I mean, that's just the way things have gone. I mean, I guess 20 years ago, no one said that there would be you know any kind of playoff, and then they created the four-team playoff. And and uh, well, they created first, I guess, the national championship game, which they never had that before. When I was a senior, I think it was split in '91 with with Washington and Miami. Um, other years, I think Georgia Tech and uh, maybe BYU split it, but having co-national championships and and Having the writers choose, you know, that, that's that's kind of mythical. Um, so they started with the championship that would never have happened, that, you know, many said would never happen. Then they got the 14 playoff they said would never happen. Um, you know, ideally, heck, you'd have a 12, 12 deal play in. Um, I think where I think the next move would probably be eight. Um, but I definitely am in favor, and I definitely think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think it, the best version of it, and I know that I'm – 
a little idealistic, and this is a long way off, but I would love if someday we have something that resembles a little bit like March Madness, where obviously we're not looking at 64 teams, but we did this last week where we built 24 teams. That's about 18% of 130 FBS schools, and you got about 18% of the 360 that make the NCAA tournament for basketball. And what I would like is just some version. It, it could be, it could be twelve. It could be sixteen. It could be twenty. I'd love to see every conference champion get an automatic bid because we've seen so many times with these teams. I'm glad Cincinnati's getting a crack at things this year, but there have been so many times that teams have won every single game on their calendar and haven't gotten to keep playing. Their season just ends in the court of public opinion. The only so so the argument against all that, and I'm not against it, but but um, I, was, I was sitting with my kids last night watching the Bucks game, uh, and uh, I was just imagining the average person has no idea how taxing a, a 16 game season is, much less 17. Oh, we would have to cut. We'd cut some games. No, co- correct. No, this has to say even 17 games in the NFL is so many. It's like to be able to get through without major injuries is almost unrealistic. And then if you add in, you know, four preseason games, you know, three, I guess they have three preseason games, that makes it 20. And then the playoffs, you could potentially have three in the playoffs. So you got, you know, you're playing 23 football games. It's just too much. And so if you backed it down to college and you had a 24 man team, you'd really have to play only 10 regular season games. I mean, you, um, especially now with players opting out um, there would be plenty of players who would say, okay, I've got four more games and against really hard teams. And I, yet I think I'm going to be a first or second rounder. You know what? I'm going to go with my pocketbook and not risk anything. And I'm going to opt out. Um, So that would, you know, you worry against that and having too many college games so that the high end type players, just as you were talking to Kenny Pickett and, and other people, and they're like, I'm not going to risk it. I got four more games. I, I just went 10 and 0. Yeah, I love football and all, but I really want to get, you know, fill it in my pocketbook. Um, so those are things you'd have to weigh out. Playing, you know, 11 or 12 games and then having a playoff would be, you know, because a lot of these teams have the the one game championship. So that adds, that's a, you know, 13th game. Um, then you'd add four more or three more. I mean, you're talking about an NFL type schedule. And I, I think you'd, worry about losing key players yeah there definitely be some adjustments that would need to be made in that situation brad i know you're a big time family man let's talk family for a little bit so you okay. met your wife monica at florida yes. and the world knows her from survivor and she did well on survivor you guys yes. both played twice both got to the end didn't end up winning uh, but Monica, she was the homecoming queen. Is that she correct? Was. She was. Please tell the story of how you guys met. Oh man, this I don't. You don't have a long enough deal for that. Um, <laughs> I'll give you an abridged version because uh, ultimately we met at a bar called Balls uh, that may still be on University Avenue in Gainesville. What led to that is a longer story, um, and this is in the spring of no yeah this is spring of 1990 we got married in 92 i was in a boating accident with my father we have a we used to have a house on dog island which is on a coastal 
uh, it's an island off of the panhandle of Florida. It's a, uh, all the houses are still houses. There's no bridge to the island. You have to get there by boat. Anyway, we had a house there for 20 years and we spearfished and dove and did all kinds of stuff. So one day in, I think it was like March, maybe in middle of March in 91, I mean, sorry, in 1990. And, uh, we were spearfishing about 20 miles out and the boat sank while we were underneath. So my my dad and I surfaced and we ended up having to swim. We swam about halfway long story short, we got rescued in the middle of the night. We were out for about 12 hours in, in the Gulf, um, you know, swimming. We couldn't see anything, but by then when nightfall came, we were able to see a big tall tower that was just a little bit above, uh, the surface and there were big waves. We could see fish and sharks and all kinds. It was crazy. So, there was a big article about it uh, in the Gainesville Sun the when I the weekend after I was we were rescued and it says you know Culpepper star football players lost at sea and all that stuff. Matter of fact, Minnesota Vikings said they drafted me because they figured if I was tough enough to live in the ocean for twelve hours, I'd be good enough for camp fodder to, for their all their great players to beat me up and I wouldn't <laughs> die. So I was. Everybody got hurt in front of me. Uh, Johnny Randall got hurt. Defensive end got hurt. They put him in front. Then off as a lineman, they put in to start preseason game, got hurt. Um, so they went into the first preseason game, kind of like, oh, God, we'll put Culpepper in. I had two sacks. I led the preseason in sacks. I had five sacks, and I made the team. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> my wife, whom I'd never met, was a third-year student. She was uh, president of Zeta Zeta Sorority, Zeta Tau Alpha, and, and – uh, what was weird is that we had the same kind of run of friends, but I'd never met her and she'd never met me. Um, but one of my running buddies, a guy named Kirk Kirkpatrick, who's All-American of Florida, he knew her. Um, the weekend before we met, the article came out and she had hurt her knee bicycling. She had torn her ACL in a bicycle accident. It was unrelated, but she was rehabbing her knee. It'll all make sense at the end. <laughs> so while she was rehabbing her knee, she did actually, she rehabbed at the same place where the Florida Gators rehabbed their knees. And there was a guy in there right next to her whom she knew because her freshman roommate had dated him when he was a freshman. And he was a junior at the time. His name was Emmett Smith. Uh, so Emmett. I, th- I think I've heard of him before. Right. <laughs> so Emmett and I were freshmen together. So we came into Florida. We actually played in high school against each other. He went to Pensacola. I, went, I was at Tallahassee Leon and we played against each other. So I, I, we took a bunch of trips together as, as recruits. So I knew Emmett well. And then we got, we played together in Florida for three years. But anyway, he's reading this article with the trainer and Monica's next, you know, riding the bike next to him. And he's, they're like, she was like, what are you guys looking at? And they had, I was on the front page of the Gainesville sun. I was all, bleached blonde. I actually had a big sunburn on my face. So it was actually a, a decent picture. <laughs> so she so so she said, who is that name? It's like, that's my boy, Brad. He's a, he's a sharp kid. He's the type of guy you'd, you'd want to marry. He's, he's, you know, straight A's and all that stuff and good football player, blah, 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 blah. The next weekend we go to the bar. My buddy and I are there sitting at the bar and we're about to leave because uh, there's only one thing better and the back then than sitting in a bar and trying to hook up would be going back and having a couple of beers and playing RBI baseball. Oh, uh, classic Nintendo. game. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, we, that's all we did. It's funny. I, I don't play any video games now. I, I, I'm, I'm not a boomer, but but I just don't. I, I really don't care. But back then, RBI baseball was was the game, and we, we played that. So anyway, we were about to leave to go to RBI baseball, and in walked a couple of co-eds just as we're about to leave, and 
this one super cute girl comes up to Kirk and starts talking to him. And I'm like, ah, yes, tight ends, this BS. Uh, anyway, she kind of looks at me and she goes, wait a minute. You're that guy that was in that boat accident, aren't you? I was like, yeah. So she kind of looked at me. She goes, well, you don't know this, but you and I are supposed to get married. It was her first words to me ever. And she kind of spun and walked away. And I was like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, what's your name? And I'm Monica. And I was like, oh, Monica. I said, well, before we get married, how about we could do lunch tomorrow? Does that work? She's like, oh, yeah, we'll try it out. So anyway, we went to lunch and 30-year anniversary will be in May. And three kids later, uh, yeah, it all worked out. But that's how, that's the, the shortened version, actually, of how we met. <laughs> that's awesome. And then, of course... Monica goes on Survivor One World before they bring you both on for she Blood versus Water. And I'm curious, she spent so many years probably at all your games, traveling with you for games. She got to experience rooting you on. Did you feel like you got to be in her position when she was on Survivor? Times 10, I'll tell you why. So originally they had come after somebody from Survivor had contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing it? And I was, was like- Was it Jody? Sure. What's that? Was it Jody Wincheski? Yes. Yeah, she was just on a week ago. She actually mentioned this. Oh, okay. So so, so Jody uh, had gotten in contact with me and uh, Jody's great too. I hope if she's listening, I have great fond feelings for her. Um, Jody's awesome. But anyway- I said, sure, I'd be interested. I they, I guess they could have Googled me. So I was an Eagle Scout and grew up in the still house, maybe about the boat accident or whatever else. And obviously played in the NFL and, and had a little bit of a name recognition. So I was uh, getting stuff together to apply to that. Then they said, like about a week later, they emailed and said, look, um, I, something like we, I've Googled your wife and, and she's really interesting. Would you be interested in the amazing race doing it with your wife? And I was like, well, for sure, I'd rather do that with her than do Survivor alone. Went, so started filling out the process for The Amazing Race. Uh, and then a couple weeks later, they're going, okay, doesn't look like it's going to work for The Amazing Race, back to Survivor. And I was like, okay. But then, <laughs> then they were like, we don't want you, we want your wife. And I was like, <laughs> so I remember calling Monica and saying, hey, they're not going on this. They're, they're not, for some reason, we're not going to work on The Amazing Race but they want us to go to talk about Survivor again. And she's like, oh, you should do it. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> they want you to do it. She's like, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? I've never stayed in a tent before, much less out the beach and bugs and everything else. So anyway, I talked her into it, but that wasn't the hard, I mean, the, the hard part. And I took her to Anklote Key or one of the keys around here in Tampa. And we stayed uh, three days in a tent. We gigged stingrays and caught fish and cooked out and kind of, show to the ropes about living outside for a little bit. But when you do Survivor, you're gone out of contact for 50 days. I mean, that's you leave and, and you go to L.A. and then you go out to whatever, wherever the site is where now it's in Fiji. But it used to kind of rotate around. She was in uh, Samoa her first time. And you're there for four to five days and then they start filming. And then, you're, you know, if you get voted off, you still have to stay out. So you're gone roughly. And it's it, back then it was. 40 days pretty much on the island. So you're gone about 50 days with zero contact. So she left and I had a five-year-old, seven-year-old and nine-year-old, uh, maybe six, but anyway, they're two years apart, but I was dealing with 
grade school, middle school kids. No, maybe in all grade school. So must have been maybe it was 12, 10, and eight. Um, but anyway, oh my God, that was misery um, compared to. And I've played since too. I, I think living alone on a beach or living, you know, with people you don't know is and, and as difficult as it is. It's much more difficult to run a household, work full time, and be a, a stay home parent with those three kids. So, they say I, I lost my mind uh, while she was gone. <laughs> I ended up getting tattoos. I got, uh, you know, Monica, I got Monica on my arm. I've got like a Samoa flower, national flower. I got 50 days written down here. I got the Southern Cross, which is the constellation in the Southern Hemisphere. I, mean, I was like, oh my God. So, there was no one more appreciative of my wife than when she got back after those 50 days and not having any contact. Um, so she did that. And then a couple of years later, we played together, which was misery for me because, I mean, I love my wife more than I love myself. So to be on separate teams, that was that was not conducive for me to be good at all. So she was able to get to the end. And, and then, of course, I played again by myself and got to the end as well. It's interesting. So we've we've both played Survivor two times. We played the exact amount of days. We've come in the exact same places. Both are runner up. Both were like number 13, you know, uh, out. Um, and then I don't, I can't remember. I knew used to know the number of days. So I think it's like we've both played like 62 days. Maybe it is on, on the Island um, two separate times. And then she said to me, actually, I have you by one because I came out and was on your loved one's visit. Um, and they didn't do that the year on Blood vs. Water. They didn't have a loved one's visit. So I didn't go out there. So I said, uh-uh-uh, technically, I was on a, a, a one, a, a, a fan vote-in one that I was not voted in. However, I had to be at the finale and was on the finale show for a one-off. So we both still played the exact amount of days on Survivor or been on, on Survivor's Jack Man Day, which is kind of ironic. And I guess the next question would be, well, would you play again? I, yeah, I mean, she'd have to be talked into it a little bit. She's like, I think my Survivor days are over. I don't really want to eat bugs. And uh, <laughs> she did. I think she's one of the only women who ever won the food challenge. I think she had to eat uh, grubs and uh, uh, mealworms and, and uh, some kind of uh, pig intestines. She did it and she won the she won that challenge. Um, if they called me to do it again, I for sure would do it. I'd need I just got my right knee replaced about three months ago. So I would need to make sure that thing's okay. But but I would definitely go back. I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, I, they filmed ours uh, on Game Changers. They filmed it on the same island that Tom Hanks was on in, in Castaway. So it was amazing. And you got the roar of the waves on every night and um, I'm, I love that whole deal and just, you're sleeping in dirt, but I mean, it, it was fantastic. So yeah, you're 40 days with no toilets, no toothbrush, uh, you know, no shampoo. It's, uh, you're smelling quite right by the end. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> so Brad, Mario Lanza, he wrote about this uh, a few years ago about how you were misunderstood the first time <laughs> that you played. And there was a lot of negativity uh, coming from fans. And I I would have to think, first of all, I would think those are probably just people 
posting stuff online who never even interact with you in the streets. I would think if people see you in the streets, they're like, Oh, Brad, I love you. I want to get a picture with you or what's survivor like, or what, what's the NFL like or whatever. But obviously there was a lot of negativity in your direction. Some stuff that was said about you. That was probably a misrepresentation of who you are. I should say it is a misrepresentation of who you are. Um, just talking to you for the past 40 minutes or so, but I mean, was that difficult? Did that impact what you're doing with your law firm or anything like that? No, no, no. In fact, probably the opposite. Um, First of all, I don't really do so. I don't, I don't do social media. So I mean, I'm the opinion that somebody's opinion of me is none of my business. Uh, I really don't care. Uh, And it hasn't, it definitely hasn't affected my law practice. I mean, uh, uh, it's two different animals. Um, if anything, there's more notoriety and people know my name. Um, it's interesting. So I live in Tampa where I played six years, um, played at the University of Florida. So my name around here is known primarily for, well, now it's for billboards and commercials because of my <laughs> law firm. Uh, I've seen those billboards. I was out in Indian Rocks Beach and went over to the Tampa airport earlier this year, and I saw one of those billboards. Those are great. Right. So they either know me from that or they know me from, you know, my football career. But and they they know me from Survivor, but I get way more Survivor stuff the further I get from home. So while being in the Bahamas, matter of fact, we had a mask on and we had had a hat on and I had like glasses on and somebody still stopped me. And you're right. I, I Although every now and then you get some, I love your wife. I hate you. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, there's a lot of, uh, oh, let me get a picture, a selfie, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and apparently um, the uh, over over this pandemic, either Netflix or somebody has been showing all the, the survivors and people have been binging them. So my daughter who plays basketball up at NYU, we go up there uh, two to three times a month and we'll, Monica and I will inevitably, and that's probably the giveaway is that we're always together because even the person down in the Bahamas was just like, oh my God, I thought it was you, but then I saw your wife and I knew it was you. And uh, <laughs> So we get stopped in New York on the street by young kids. I say young, I mean, college kids, you know, twenties um, all the time, way more than when we actually, than it was aired. It seems like a lot of the younger crew is, is watching Survivor and, and, love it. And we always, of course, Monica will talk to them for, oh God dang, 20 minutes, <laughs> tell them how they can apply and, and they should and everything else. And I, I don't know that I have that much patience, but uh, <laughs> we're always really cordial and happy to have somebody take pictures or what have you. So, and it's a cool little family to be a part of. I know, I mean, Tony and Sandra, you name it, Parvati, all, all, all the big characters. It's almost like a little fraternity and, we all connect in different ways, um, which is a lot of fun to be another fraternity because obviously clearly the NFL is a fraternity. And when John Lynch, he and I roomed together in Tampa for the six years here. So it was fun to go up and watch him get in the Hall of Fame. Warren Sapp and I played together, you know, for a long time. And, and uh, we uh, have kept up communications quite often. And Derek Brooks and Survivor is kind of the same way. You know, you can keep up with everybody. You may not see them for a year or two, then you'll hit a text message and reconnect with people. And it's a lot of fun. We all have a common deal. And and all the, you know, you obviously there are personalities that bang heads. 
that all subsides over time and it kind of softens. Um, you know, Candace Cody was the one that was hardest on me. Uh, and John, John and I still text and I, I say hey to Candace and everything else. I mean, it, it's all good. <laughs> and I would, I would say this too, you know, there's only one thing worse than, than uh, you know, people uh, talking about you. And that's people not talking about you. So that's true. That's uh, very true. You so, mentioned your, oh, sorry. Go, no, 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 go ahead. Oh, you mentioned your daughter, Honor. I know she plays at NYU. She plays basketball. Uh, you have two sons. Rex was at Syracuse and Judge is at Toledo right now. I'm curious, how have you noticed, if at all, the college recruiting process has changed since the time that you were recruited 30 years ago? Well, back then, that's fine. I got my daughter texting me. Um, it's twenty four seven now. It, it's it's crazy how much time. And you're you're wondering about Herm Edwards, or you know, you thinking, okay, he's not going to win the Pac ten by coaching. He's going to win the Pac ten by recruiting. And 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 it's just especially with social media the way it is. I mean, you've got to be – the coaches are in touch with recruits all the time, every day. And if it's not the head coach, it's the assistant coach, or it's not assistant coach, it's the head recruiting coordinator, and if it's not him, but or it's all the above. And you get inundated with just – I mean, I back when I was getting recruited, it was all letters. So you would get letters. You could deal with it when you wanted to. And then there was one signing day that was in February. There's no early signing day. There was no early commitment. Nobody knew anything until you signed the dot bottom line. Whereas now they're starting recruiting when kids are freshmen and sophomores and pushing to com commit. I mean, it's, it's much more of a hassle and, and uh, something is hanging on your shoulders than it was as much when I was coming out. Um, I think I'm, I was like the number 13 recruit in the nation uh, way back in 1987. Um, so I, and I had offers from my over 80 schools or 100 schools, um, but most of my correspondence was through mail, which made it a lot easier um, and much more manageable than it than it is now. Uh, my son Judge, who's now at Toledo, started at Penn State, um, offered by Alabama and Florida and all, all, all the big schools. Um, but we it was such a relief to finally make a commitment and go. Uh, we went to Penn State, and it, and it was a good fit. His defensive line coach ended up going to the Giants and they kind of switched things up. And so it wasn't really as good a fit with their scheme. Is why, why we left. Um, but no, the recruiting process is unrelenting and, and uh, it's, it's a drag and it works both ways. I'm sure the coaches, I mean, the biggest thing about coaches is, uh, you know, I think they love to coach football and they hate recruiting and, and that would, prevent me from ever really wanting to coach college football. If, you know, I, I'm, I don't know that I want to coach at all, but if I were to coach, it would only either be high school or pros. I, I would, I would eliminate the whole going in and having to be accessible 24 seven to, you know, 10 different kids or who, you know, 20 different kids that are in my area. That's something that has bothered me a little bit with some of the urban Meyer coverage is people are like, Oh, well, he can't hack it in the pros. It's a whole different ball game. It's so much tougher. And it's like, I guess it's just different. I mean, it like is. you talked about earlier, it's different. But I think the 
the the problem with a lot of that uh, logic is that a lot of people then think, oh, well, college is a lot easier. College, all you got to do is recruit. Well, recruiting takes 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time. I covered the Valpo basketball team while I was there, so I'm pretty close with those coaches. And I see what how much work they do, and you're not – it's it's not that way at the professional level. You mentioned that. No, and and now there's it's almost like 3D chess. You've got the portal, and, and you've got that situation. So you the recruiting doesn't stop. I mean, just because someone goes to Notre Dame doesn't mean that he's not going to be available in a year, you know, or goes anywhere. And so you've got to keep the open line of communications continuing, even when somebody's committed or signs with any team. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's just another level, and that's a complication that, I don't know. I, it, it's going to be weird to see how college football evolves in the next 20 years if it becomes something separate from schools or, or just representative of schools. And I don't know, because, you know, with the NILs and, and, and being able to essentially be a free agent, um, it's just a whole other level of having to deal with, um, you know, and even back to the Urban Meyer – he would have to, you know, bone up on all that type stuff. Not that he couldn't because he's, he's an amazing recruiter, but there's another level of it within the portal and, and, you know, with continual recruitment of players that are already playing at another school. And your son, Rex, is he doing well? Rex is great. He's uh, you know, he had cancer, his uh, testicular cancer his junior year, uh, which set him back a little bit, but he's cancer free. And he's wow. now, uh, he, pretty much made straight A's in his first semester at Stetson Law School. That's awesome. I, Jane, so. I saw him last year when he got in. Uh, it was one of the second or third week of the season last year where he got in and they scored that long touchdown on right. second or third play. It was, it was. I'm sure that was a very amazing moment for you guys. For sure. So he was able to, you know, he threw about 10 touchdowns and, and uh, got to play and it was great. So, but he was, he was happy to move on into his next stage of life. Uh, which I can't blame you for that either. Well, Brad, I know you got to run here in a second. So last uh, question or two I got here. You finished your career playing on the Chicago Bears. I live here in Chicago. I might be going to the Monday night game tonight. Mm. I'm actually a Steelers fan. I'm not even a Bears fan, but I live here in Chicago. And I know you were teammates with Brian Urlacher his rookie year. And you played with a lot of great players over the course of your career. First, I want to know, what did you think of playing in Chicago? Did you enjoy it? Was it fun or was it just a pressure cooker? Um, all the NFL is a pressure cooker. So right. it's no, it's no more of a pressure cooker than anywhere else. Um, you know, you, the, the demand to win is in, as heavy in green Bay and Tampa as it would be in Chicago and New York. Um, no, I, I we, we loved Lake forest. Uh, we loved living there. Our kids were little. Um, the, That's a great suburb. I'm in Met, by the way. Okay. And, and, but, but, you know, playing and of course I played at Soldier Field, you know, when I was with the Vikings and and the Bucks too, but um, no, I'm real proud to say I was a Chicago bear for a year. Um, You know, we didn't necessarily have very good offense um, at the time, which is not unfamiliar. I was, I was actually very, and still am very good friends with Jim McMahon. Um, He played with me at the Vikings. And so we got to know Jim and Nancy, I think they're divorced now, but uh, we went to their, sons who Zach, who was a five-year-old, I think he helped 
you know, I had to go get his bear one time he left. But anyway, we went to his wedding down in Cabo last spring. So, you know, Tom Thayer, I, I know a ton of bears. Uh, Trace Armstrong was a college, we were in each other's wedding. And, and so I, I've known a lot of guys who played for the bears. Um, so, no, I have very fond memories uh, of being in Chicago. And, and although we weren't as successful on the field, it, it, I still have my Bears helmet and jersey and all that stuff. So it's kind of cool. And what was playing with Brian Urlacher like? Okay. What was he like? So when Brian got there, I mean, we, we all thought he was going to be a bust. They had him like playing like against the, the, the tight end uh, in preseason, and he was terrible. I mean, you know, he was kind of awkward. Um, and then I remember right before the, the opening day, uh, our middle linebacker getting Barry Minter got hurt. And so they put him – instead of being a Sam, they put him at Mike, which is the center of the kind of universe of the defense. And he just ran free. And, but I remember going into that game, we we're all looking like, you're going to put Erlocker in the middle. I mean, we're, we got no chance. And he put it, turned on the film and the guy was everywhere. I mean, he was, he, he was a different style player than he became later in his career. I think he, he developed more into a middle, big, heavy linebacker. But when he came in the league, he was tall and skinny and was really fast. Um, but he just ran to the ball a little, a little bit like Micah Parsons. You know, they put him up, put him everywhere and just let him run to the ball and he made it happen. And then he kind of evolved, you know, as the seasons went on and Lovey Smith got there, he, you know, he, he became more of a, a middle backer and understanding schemes and guards pulling and fullbacks and, and where things are happening and where to fill the, fill the position. Um, unlike, I, I think, you know, they tried to, Thomas, they tried to do that with Micah, but he's not there yet. He can't be a middle linebacker. They need to play him more like just, I mean, like a junior Seau. Junior was kind of the type that you just put him on outside, inside, everywhere else, and let him run to the ball, and he makes plays. That's how Erlacher started, and then they kind of moved him back in the middle, and he became, you know, the Hall of Fame player he is. Super nice guy, though. I, I he was, he was like a yes or no sir type to players. Uh, you know, obviously you're like that way to coaches when you first get in the league. You know, you're like, hey, coach this. And they're like, what player? So then you learn to call everybody by the first name and rookies do too. But he when he got there, he's like, yes, Mr. Culpepper. And it's like, <laughs> Brad or Pep or something. So anyway, he he was he was fun to get to know and, and turned into one of the greatest. I think he played safety in college. He did. And yeah. punt returner. Yeah. Yeah, he was a great coverage linebacker. I honestly thought he was a little overshadowed over the course of his career because everyone was talking about Ray Lewis at the time. But they both were first ballot Hall of Famers in the same year. He was a great player, and props to him. He's got hair now. <laughs> and Drew Brees. <laughs> Drew Brees? Yeah. What about said, Drew Brees? He, he has hair, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, amazing. They retired from the NFL and all of a sudden grew their hair back. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, Brad, this was just an absolute treat having you here. Would you like to plug your law firm or anything that uh, you want people to follow, your kids on social media, anything like that? I don't need all that. Culpepper Curlin is my firm. You can find it just by finding me. But uh, no, I'm not on here to plug. I'm just on here to have a good time. All right. Well, it was a great time. Thank you very much, Brad. All right, Jack. All right. That does it today for my conversation with former NFL player. He played nine years in the NFL with the Vikings, Bucks, and Bears, a college football Hall of Fame potential member. He's on the ballot right now, and hopefully we see him get in. He's a Florida football legend. He was on the first team that ever won the SEC in 1991 and really helped 
build that program with Steve Spurrier and advance it to what we know Florida football as today. And of course, he competed on Survivor, so it was great having him here. His name is Brad Culpepper. He's a really good dude. I really enjoyed just talking with him today. If you guys enjoyed today's episode of the Jack Vita Show, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Hit subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. Write a few kind words. That'll help us get this show out to more people. You can follow me at Jack Vita Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And log on to my website, jackvita.com, for more content where I'm doing a lot of writing. We're going to have more content coming soon. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. So until next time, I'm Jack Vita, bringing the dancing lobsters. <laughs>